is Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and your stories, too. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll put them together, and we'll send them right back out to you over the airwaves. Your stories are as good as any we put together. This next story is a really good one. We love telling you stories about people you should know, but don't, and particularly about innovators in their field. Because there's always a lot of pain in innovation. There's disruption, and in disruption and change, there is often difficulty. And this next person, while I happen to know him well, he's my doctor. Let's throw it to Joey for a remarkable life story. When you think of leaders in innovation, who comes to mind? Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, Steve Jobs? All true giants in American history. Some of those stories that we've told on the show. But how about Cooper? Dr. Ken Cooper. You probably haven't heard his name, but you should have. He's the physician to presidents and CEOs and has helped put astronauts in space. And if that's not enough, his life's work has most likely impacted your life personally. Do you exercise? Has anyone, a loved one, or a doctor ever told you that you should exercise? Well, like it or not, the father of that movement, that way of life, is Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics. The practice of vigorous exercise to strengthen the heart, lungs, and general health. Aerobics, a term that before Dr. Cooper wasn't even in the dictionary. Today, it is largely accepted in medicine, but not so much in the 1960s. Here's Dr. Ken Cooper on the medical community's response to his book titled Aerobics. And let's just say that the doctors and scientists at the time, especially the older ones, were not too receptive of this revolutionary thing called aerobics. When the book first came out in 1968, I actually saw titles in medical newspaper articles that the street's going to be full of dead joggers. There's more Americans follow Cooper. Every time someone had died while jogging, I heard about it. And I thought for a while I was responsible for that. But then you start putting the figures together. And you see that when people start reading the book, 1968, had 100,000 joggers. By 1984, we had 34 million joggers. And by 1990, we had 35 million joggers. And from 1906 to 1990, heart disease dropped 48%. All of this began while Dr. Ken Cooper was working in the Air Force. Cooper was recruited to create the fitness program for NASA astronauts, where he would refine his big idea, aerobics, the groundwork for preventive medicine, a practice that, quote, focuses on the health of individuals, communities, and defined populations to protect, promote, and maintain health and well-being, and to prevent disease, disability, and even death, a medical practice that America, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is in dire need of. It's been deplorable that the obesity in our children has gone from 13% in 1990 to 33% overweight or obese at the present time. Our adults have gone from 33% in 1990 to 80% in this, in this country. We haven't done much about it. 76% of the diseases we have are the result of our lifestyle. 45% of cancers are preventable. And we spend twice as much money as anybody else in the world on health care, and we rank 43rd in longevity. Too much care, too late. And so we've got to make those changes. Changes that Dr. Ken Cooper would experience in his youth. 
As a kid, one of Ken's dreams was to become an Olympic runner, and he was pretty darn close, running a 4 minute and 30 second mile in high school. And back then, that was a big deal. But such is the case with many of us, Ken's fitness would take a sharp decline as he would start the next chapter of his life. I got to college for four years and soon discovered that obesity is the most common manifestation of stress. So I jumped from 168 by the time I finished medical school, internship, and I got married. For an eight-year period, I did nothing to eat. I gained up to 204 pounds. I was dying of mental apathy. I was, had to go in the military for two years to pay back the being deferred from the draft. During that was in the Vietnam conflict. But then something happened to change my life. I've been an excellent water skier during my youth. At 29 years of age, I went water skiing for the first time in eight years, trying to ski a slalom course here at Lake Texoma, southern Oklahoma. About halfway through the slalom course, way overweight, deconditioned, I had a cardiac arrhythmia to hit me. And I thought I was having a heart attack. My heart just jumping out of my chest, beating very, very rapidly. I was lightheaded, and I thought I was going to pass out out there on the water. They got me over to the site, got me on to the emergency room. By the time I got to the emergency room, it was all back to normal. I had a very extensive workout back at uh, Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio with my heart, and they couldn't find anything wrong. One thing wrong with me, I was out of shape. And so that shot me back into reality. So I lost the weight within six months. I ran my first marathon a year and a half later. And as you know, I ran for 40 years before I broke my leg snow skiing back in 2004. But what happened to me, Prior to the time I lost that weight, I was hypertensive, I was borderline diabetic, I had no energy. I told my wife I felt like I was dying from mental apathy. That all changed. And I felt much better, physically fitter, less depressed, less of a hypochondriac, improved self-image, much more positive attitude towards life. That happened to me. And I thought, this is a field of medicine that's been sadly ignored, what we can do for ourselves. I was planning on being an ophthalmologist. An orthopedic surgeon. I finished my two years in the military. But this dramatic thing happened to me. I think that was divine because the Lord had a plan for me. And so that changed my life and changed my direction. I transferred from the Army to the Air Force to go into the space program. I thought I'd be a NASA astronaut. Lost the weight, running regularly. Ran the Boston Marathon twice. Became a quote-unquote expert in the Air Force because Master's of Public Health the first year at Harvard School of Public Health. Worked on Doctor of Science next year. Left, went back to the military, and I was the Air Force expert. Worked in designing exercise program for the astronauts. Developed the aerobics program while I was in the Air Force. So that episode with my obesity problem, I was able to change my life, and that probably saved my life. Because the uh, majority of my medical school colleagues graduated in 1956 were the same thing. And back in those days, half of them smoked. And now there's only 20 of us left because I'm afraid that most of those uh, colleagues of mine didn't have that wake-up call that I had at 29 years of age, and they died young in life. And so I think that was a wake-up for me that it saved my life and changed my profession. And more on the life story of the father of aerobics and one of the leaders in preventive medicine in this country, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper continues after these commercial messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper. And by the way, he had said earlier, the Lord had a plan for me, and my goodness, he did. And Dr. Cooper's a believer and a man of science, and that happens every day here in this great country. Let's pick up where we last left off. We left off with Ken's accident shocking him back to health. An accident that with the additional inspiration from a book he read, would thrust him into a vocation that would help people from around the world live healthier and longer lives. I read a book entitled Halftime. And in this book, Bob Buford said you can be successful, not significant. That was me. You can be successful, but not significant. I was successful in the eyes of the military, but you can't become a general officer unless you have some administrative experience. You've got to leave what you've been doing all those years. I said, I'll gladly finish my 20 years. Let me stay here. I'll get a rank of a colonel. I'll be perfectly satisfied. Let me stay here and continue what I've been doing. I'm having an impact on the military. Until after I left, that the Air Force said the most significant contribution that Air Force Medical Services made to medicine was the aerobics program. A program whose potential was not fully realized at the time. And because of the military's administrative glass ceiling, preventing him from rising through the ranks and making a greater impact, Dr. Ken Cooper decided to take a big risk. I'm getting out. I had no insurance, had no separation pay, had a wife that's pregnant with my son, Tyler, and a five-year-old daughter, moved from, with our dog, Christy, a Cocker Spaniel, we moved like the Grapes of Wrath from uh, San Antonio to Dallas. It hadn't been for Joe McKinney and the Totter Corporation called Saturn Industry back in those days, I'd be here today. Because after still in the military, back in 1968, he read the book, Aerobics, excited about the book so much that he asked me to speak to his corporate executives at Lakeway down near Austin, Texas Lake Travis. And so I spoke to his top executives there, and he was so enthralled with the concept of what I was talking about, the aerobics program and all, and the book, that he said, if you ever decide to leave the military and you want to come to Dallas and start something of your own, let me know. I put that in the back of my mind. But two years later, I came to Dallas, and I thought that I had two successful books, but you don't have any, I had a financial statement worth about $25,000, and that was all. You don't have much money, particularly myself, softback books back in those early days. And so I thought I could raise enough money to build this center, starting with only 8.6 acres. But I went to savings and loans, and they uh, wanted to know what I was going to use for collateral. I thought that was something around the blood pressure obstructed. Sorry, son, we can't help you. And I just finally bummed out. And I went to Joe McKinney and said, Joe, here I am. I, I can't do it by myself. Can you help me? We'll try. And so I needed $1.6 million to buy this property here, the first 8.6 acres of 30 acres we have now. And so he said, okay, put it before his board. We won by one vote. That they loaned me the money, no interest. For six months, I paid no interest. And so I was able to buy the property. And then it took me 11 months downtown before I could move out here, early 1971. But I had to borrow $2,000 a month, pay mother to employees. I lived on savings. So it was tough. And they got to Dallas and uh, went from, from the, fire to, from the fry, from frying pan to the fire because this was very controversial back in those days in 1970, 1971. 
After years of refining and practicing aerobics, and collecting an incredibly large amount of data, Ken's mission, his vocation, would become mainstream. But it certainly wasn't easy to get there. And to fully understand how Dr. Ken Cooper would successfully weather this pushback, we have to understand his relationship with his father, a man who wasn't foreign to such criticism. His father, a Depression-era dentist, was similarly rejected by the science community for subscribing to what was at the time also revolutionary, the nutritional supplementation of vitamins. So my dad was a strong proponent of vitamins, the alphabet tablets. And back in those days, even when I was in medical school, I was taught that vitamin supplementation was worthless. It makes the pharmacist rich and the toilet water very expensive. And you're wasting your time on vitamins. And to some extent, that was true back in those days because we had good food, good diets by and large. We had not a lot of processing foods like we have at the present times. And, and the foods weren't deficient in vitamins like they are at the present time. And that's what's become necessary for us to supplement our diets with vitamins because the processing food, the growing of food, the deterioration of the soil, all these various things. So my father was ahead of his time there. And so he wrote strongly recommend, and I grew up with the supplemental vitamin therapy. I thought he was nuts back in those days because I was being taught to the contrary in medical school. And here, according to Dr. Ken Cooper, is how the medical community responded to his father. They all thought he was a quack because his emphasis on vitamins but they also accused my father of practicing medicine because many times people would come to him with their pyrrhea problems, their dental problems, but changed their diet, changing their diets, and they found that their, that their arthritis improved and their diabetes improved. And so he actually saw other benefits by trying to improve the situation in mouth that had a total body effect. They'd actually accused him of trying to practice medicine without a license. So that was how much innovator my father was. He felt threatened, but he's still the same as I've done. He stuck to what he believed until the time of his death. So my father, without question, was a tremendous impact on my life. But I think what he, more than anything else, what he taught me was discipline. Was my weight, my diet, my exercise, my studying, my good grades in school. All these various things I attribute to my father. Ingenuity, determination, and discipline all qualities passed on by his father to help Ken weather the trials to come. Here's Ken on how the medical community responded to aerobics. Exercise was dangerous. It shouldn't be done. Past 40 years of age, they'd have a heart attack. That was still prominent thinking up until 1989. After collecting data on the effects of exercise and stress testing on health, Ken started to make waves releasing their projected findings that aerobics would not only drastically improve your health, but add six years onto your life. We published that front page, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, American Heart Association said for the first time in all these years that your aerobic capacity is a major coronary risk factor. In 2009, we had uh, 96,000 people, men and women, who had fought it for 20 years. And we predicted, we couldn't prove this yet, but we predicted our men would live 87.5 years, women 90.5 years. That's over 10 years longer than the national average. That was predicted and controversial in 2009. But within the past couple of months, Harvard School of Public Health 
published an interesting study on their physicians and nurses study. 34-year follow 126,000 people in the study. They looked at these risk factors. Proper weight, proper diet, exercising at least 30 minutes, no use of tobacco in any form, and then only minimal alcohol consumption. Five things. And what they showed, those people had, didn't have any good risk factors. The women's average life expectancy was 79.5 years, and men 75.5 years. But they had none of those risk factors. The average life expectancy for men was 87.5 years, women 93.5 years. Almost exactly what I said 10 years earlier. Based on prediction, it's now come full force. That has happened so many things now that I predicted, had criticism of all magnitude that have come full circle. And you're listening to Dr. Ken Cooper. He just happens to be my doctor. But my goodness, the things he's teaching Americans about weight, about diet, about exercise, and people around the world, how to control our health care costs, well, do these things, and how to extend your life and live better and longer. Do those things. Eat right, exercise. Again, at the time, people thought he was crazy. We learned this from innovators in almost every walk of life that we've covered thus far. And 30 years later, look at the data and look at the research. Men living 87.5 years, women 90 plus. More on Dr. Ken Cooper's story here on Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter. And if you do, you'll get our five best stories each week in print and audio form. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Ken Cooper's story continues here on Our American Stories. continue with the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, the father of aerobics and preventive medicine, and one of the leaders of preventive medicine and healthcare around the world, not just the United States. And we left off with Ken receiving great criticism from the scientific community, claiming that exercise and stress testing would not help, but actually harm patients. Ken's findings would prove otherwise, and unfortunately, so would some patients. Back to Ken with the story. A 57-year-old pastor here in town, and he heard me speak at a luncheon, trying to generate patients I'd speak at the Rotary Clubs and things like that. Never got paid for anything. But then he heard me speak and heard me say that if you're over 40 years of age, you should have a stress test before you start a vigorous exercise program. 
because most common first sentiments of your heart's disease is sudden death. People don't bother until it's too late. You heard me say that. And so he came in my little office, way overweight, 57 years of age. I put him on the treadmill. I stopped in two minutes. I said, sir, there's a prominent pastor, a very large church here in Dallas. And I said, sir, you have severe coronary disease. You need to be hospitalized immediately. What do you mean? Your EKG is grossly abnormal. Oh, I saw my physician the other day, did a resting EKG. Said, you don't have any heart disease. That Cooper's a nut. I'll run him out of town. I said, okay, sir. If you're hospitalized for the next 24 hours, I'm washing my hands of your case. Called his physician. I've been practicing medicine now for 62 years. And the only one time I've been cursed up another physician. And that was that physician. What are you doing, you so-and-so? You ought to get back in the Air Force. You're a nut. I'll run you out of town. You're a quack. Oh, okay, sir. I'll accept that. But the fact this man has serious disease needs to be attended to immediately. I don't believe that. That's a bunch of baloney. Okay? I'm washing my hands of his, of his case. And 10 days later, sitting at his desk, he collapsed and died. And the first person to call me was that physician. I didn't know. I didn't know. He's afraid of malpractice because I'm sure he told the family, forget about Cooper, he's a nut. And he was afraid that somebody going to file suit because he told the patient, don't worry about him. We lost a very prominent and successful and talented pastor who could, could be alive today. But fortunately, years later, after many trials and tribulations, the medical community has not only taken their target off of Dr. Ken Cooper's back, but has embraced aerobics and preventive medicine. The Lord's given me a long life to see it happen during my lifetime. So now it's, it's worldwide. And as you can tell, Ken is not only a science guy, but also a God guy. The media tries to tell us that they can't coexist, but Dr. Ken Cooper has reason to believe otherwise. I went to, uh, with my son to climb Kilimanjaro in Africa, 1989. There were six fathers and sons in the group. I knew ahead of time I couldn't uh, spend the whole time because I didn't want to go above 14,000 feet because I had too much time in the Air Force at a high altitude. And I didn't want to have more damage to my brain. So I just planned on going to the 14,000 feet. But going across the border there, going in from Kenya, where we trained for about 10 days to climb that 19,000 foot mountain, and going across the border from Kenya into Tanzania, they wouldn't let me across because I had a stamp in my passport from South Africa because the apartheid and all that. No, no, you can't come into Tanzania. That's not possible. Well, I asked the guide, what's going to cost me? About $35. So I bribed my way to get in to Tanzania. But then after I left the group, I did go to 14,000, but up and back one day. But then the next morning, I was being driven back to the border with a gentleman who didn't speak any English. And so I was getting close to the border. I started really worrying. I'm illegal. I don't have a stamp in my passport to get me through here. And if I find out that I have that stamp from South Africa, they may put me in jail. I mean, I was terrified, literally. And I didn't know what to do. I was by myself there and no one, didn't know anybody. Most of them couldn't speak English. And I was actually standing in line with two people in front of me when all of a sudden this beautiful woman dressed in white came up beside me. Dr. Cooper, I've been waiting for you. Give me your passport. And so I gave her my passport, walked up. She opened the passport in a very profound voice. She said, stamp it, so he couldn't see anything. And then he closed it back up, gave it back to me, the one there. 
I was the only person who saw that, that woman. You think that was happenstance? To my dying days, I believe that was an angel. And that dying day doesn't seem to be any day soon. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, is still working harder than ever. My wife has made the comment, don't you wish you had as much a passion about anything as my husband does about what he's doing? And that's true. It's what keeps, I don't have to work anymore. I'm well off. I can retire. I'd be bored sick. Gone for almost three weeks. Beautiful cruise. I could hardly wait to get back. And see, patience. I mean, yesterday I had Charlie Duke here. Only one of four living astronauts who's walked on the moon. He was here yesterday. Been my patient since 19, 1998. So that type of thing, I love my patients. Had a new patient today. I spent an hour and a half with him or longer. And he just couldn't believe I'm spending so much time with this patient. Because what has made successful and why patients stand in line to come, he was an overbook that I took today. Wasn't planning on taking a patient today, but I enjoy it. And he's a top CEO, he's not CEO, he's, but his CEO has all the people coming here. He's the top vice president of his organization. And I had a delightful time with him. That motivates me. I enjoy my work. How many people you know at seven years of age who still enjoy their work? You know, uh, I like what uh, the promotional speaker of uh, uh, Zig Ziglar once said. You don't retire, you refire. I'm still refiring. Dr. Ken Cooper, at 87 years old, still refiring indeed. At 87 years old, exercising, maintaining a healthy diet, and living longer, healthier, and happier. All because he follows his own advice. Dr. Ken Cooper, from helping put astronauts in space to helping society become healthier. For Our American Stories, I'm Joey Cortez. And great job on that, Joey. And thanks also to the Stetson family office in New York. And they work well diligently on this issue of preventive medicine and the Healthcare Impact Foundation, which they manage Well, they're trying to solve this problem for cities and countries around the world because, my goodness, we're chewing up so much of our money as a society on care that comes too little and too late, as Dr. Cooper acknowledged and is working his life uh, to help fix. And also, I'm a patient with Dr. Cooper, and I can only tell you in four months I'm going back. And uh, he does put you through the paces, and you go on this treadmill, and he's, he's like a coach. You're a little afraid of him, and he spends two hours with you. Two hours you're going to have a doctor with you. And at 87, he's on fire, and he is working a full day. And when you go in and you spend some time with him, after that two hours, boom, the next person's coming in, and then the next, and then the next. And he was telling me that his little routine includes a movie with his bride on Saturday nights, a little break on Saturday afternoons. He comes into work on Saturday, too, just to review all of the the patient's files to make sure everything's working right. Uh, This is a guy who loves his work, and Americans love work, and we love talking about Americans at work. Work is so important in our lives, and my goodness, it gives meaning to our lives. I might also do a call out to Bob Buford's book, Halftime, because it changed so many people's lives in this country. If you haven't read it, you should pick it up. And that whole point about having a successful life, but not a significant one, well, it really hit a lot of men in their 50s. And they just changed. They started changing things. And I mean really changing things. Dr. Ken Cooper's story 
here on Our American Stories. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all the things that we do. And again, sign up for our free newsletter. Please get friends to do it too. We'll send you our five best stories each week in audio form and in written form if you prefer to read our stories. But my goodness, it's so much more fun hearing the voices of these people. The legend, the story of Dr. Ken Cooper, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our story of a song. And we've done a bunch of these, and we love doing them. We did Georgia on My Mind, Light My Fire. Ray Manzarek walked us through that one. Another brick in the wall and how that song came to be. There Goes My Life. We heard the song performed by the guy who wrote that song and why he wrote that song. Very moving. Jesus Take the Wheel, and our favorite here at Our American Stories, Gimme Shelter. And those background tracks, that one lone African-American female backup singer adding this haunting element that makes the song. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear any and all of our stories of a song. And today, it's Chris Christopherson's Why Me? And this is one of the great writers, a terrific actor, too, an all-around man's man, ladies' man. Everybody loved and loves Chris Christopherson. And my goodness, me and Bobby McGee alone gets you there. He wrote that. And Sunday morning, coming down. Why Me was recorded by Christofferson in 1972. And it was his lone major country hit as a solo recording artist, reaching number one on the Billboard magazine Hot Country Singles charts in 1973. Here, Chris Christofferson tells the story of exactly why and how he came up with that song back in the 1970s. And it had a lot to do with Larry Gatlin and his song and the type of music that Larry was recording at the time. We've been down in Cookville with a bunch of people doing a benefit for, uh, for Dottie West's uh, high school band or something. Then uh, Connie took me over to, to church the next day to, to Jimmy Snow's church. Uh, I, I had a profound uh, religious experience uh, during during uh, the the uh, session, something that I hadn't never had happened to me before, and uh, and uh, why me came out of it. Everybody was kneeling down, and uh, and uh, Jimmy said uh, uh, something like, "If if anybody's lost, please raise their hand." And I was I was kneeling there, and I don't go to I don't go to church a lot, and uh, and uh, the notion of raising my hand was uh, out of out of the question, <laughs> and I thought uh, I I can't imagine who's doing this, and all of a sudden I felt my hand going up, and I was hoping nobody else was looking because everybody was had their head over, bend over. Uh, 
praying, and then he said, uh, if, if anybody's ready to accept Jesus, something like this, uh, come down to the front of the, of the church. And uh, uh, I thought that would never happen. And uh, and uh, I found myself getting up and walking down with all these people and going down there. And, and I don't really know what he said to me. He said something to me like, are you ready to accept uh, Jesus Christ in your life or something? And I said, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing there. And he put me down. <laughs> he said, kneel down here. And, and he... Uh, I, I can't even remember what he was saying, but whatever it was, was such a release for me that I, I find myself weeping in public, <laughs> and and uh, and uh, I felt the, this uh, forgiveness that I didn't that I didn't know I even needed. Then Christopherson in this small group with some musicians. By the way, one of them was next to him. His name's Willie Nelson. They performed the song. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus. I've wasted it so. And there have been a whole bunch of people who've recorded this song. Elvis Presley among them. He incorporated it into his set with the song Why My Lord back in 1974 in January and then right up until his last concert tour. It was first released on the live album Elvis recorded live on stage in Memphis. The recording is from his March 20, 1974 concert in Memphis, Tennessee. He often introduced the song for J.D. Sumner, to sing one of his favorite songs. Sumner would sing the verses, and Elvis would then join in the chorus. Let's take a listen. Thank you. I'd like to ask J.D. Sumner and the Stamps to sing one of my favorite songs, Why Me, Lord?
And the favorite version here at Our American Stories involves two of our favorites from two very different walks of life, two different styles of music, the great Johnny Cash and the great Ray Charles. And with that, another story of the song, Chris Christopherson's song, you heard Elvis do it. My goodness, so many people did. Let's listen to Ray and let's listen to Johnny do it. me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth love from you and the kindness you've shown? I've wasted it, so help me, Jesus. I know why I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hands. This is our American stories, the story of a song. And this one, Why Me, by Chris Christopherson. And let's take it back. Gospel being at the root of so much of American music. Let's listen to Ray Charles play those keyboards and hear Johnny Cash take it out. This is Our American Stories. Try me, Lord, if you think there's a way that I can repay what I've taken from you. Maybe, Lord, I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you. My 
This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show. And we bring you right now the story of a man who altered the course of American history. We begin the tale of this legendary abolitionist with a song we all know. Here's Jesse. Ah, the battle hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Glory, glory, hallelujah, His truth is marching on. It was a favorite among Union soldiers during the Civil War going to and from battle. The lyrics were written by abolitionist Julia Ward Howe in 1861. But would you be surprised to know that these are not the original lyrics? Derived from Christian folk hymnals carried on by oral tradition, some people say the song's roots come from an African-American wedding song in Georgia or a British shanty that started as a Swedish drinking song, which is the long way of saying that nobody really knows where it came from. But the tune was kept, and the lyrics were rearranged by the 2nd Infantry Battalion of the Massachusetts Militia to honor a man named John Brown, a man who almost single-handedly started the Civil War. The song became known as John Brown's Body. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. John Brown was an abolitionist who advocated violence to overthrow slavery in the United States at a time when many abolitionists were more interested in finding a peaceful resolution. Some people saw him as a hero and a visionary. Others saw him as a madman and a terrorist. He was born May 9th in the year 1800, in Torrington, Connecticut. My family is of Puritan stock. I would claim that some of my ancestors were on the, the Mayflower. My grandfather, my namesake, also John Brown, was a captain in the Revolutionary War. Soil in New England is rough and stony, but my roots go very deep into it. When I was five, my father moved our family to Hudson, Ohio. The soil there was better, deeper, richer. We could do better there. I went to school early on in Hudson. I didn't stay in school long, but what I got lasted me a lifetime. My father, Owen, was a man of intense sentiments, both religious and social. He was an abolitionist in an age in which abolition was hardly thought of by anyone. He had the radical belief that white people and black people were equal in the sight of God. They stood flat on the ground before the cross, and no one, no one had the ability to look down on anyone else. Many people in those days thought that blacks, if freed, should go back to Africa. Many thought that slavery was a bad thing, but didn't really quite know what to do about it either. Not my father. Owen, a very strict man, who disciplined us severely at times, was a strong advocate for treating people of all races, of all flavors, very much the same. My father was so strong in his beliefs that abolition was the answer, not repatriation, that at a point in my life 
he actually split the church over that issue and went off and formed a whole other church called the Free Congregational Church and took half the congregation with him. My mother died when I was young, Ruth, December 9th, 1808. She was my shining star. To lose her at such an early age left a mark on me forever. The most difficult part of it, I think, was that very soon after that, the next year, my father remarried a very young woman named Sally Root and had a whole other family with her. Us boys who had been born to Ruth really never quite got on well with Sally. She was so close to our age, and we just didn't see eye to eye with her. At 16 years old, John Brown left Ohio for prep school in Massachusetts before transferring to Morris Academy in Connecticut. He wanted to become a minister, but he ran out of money and returned to Ohio to work at his father's tannery. I married in 1820 to a young lady named Diantha Lusk, June 21st, a June wedding. It was a great time. We had a good life together, and soon babies began to arrive. Our very first we named John Jr. Mm. We lived from place to place as work came, and sometimes things didn't go so well. There were many financial panics back in those days, and the economy went up and down sometimes very unpredictably, and I got caught in many a situation where I had borrowed way too much money. I made very bad decisions sometimes about business and got caught, and I went eventually into bankruptcy at some points. I lived in Pennsylvania the longest time. I lived in Ohio, back home. Went up to Massachusetts, to Springfield for a while, went back to Ohio. I went to Europe. I saw England, France, Germany. I was a well-traveled man. People often think of me, I think, as someone who was some kind of wild-eyed rube from the Hicks. But though I only had a very small formal education, I had worked very hard to educate myself. I read voraciously. I had memorized the entire Bible. When I was very small, 10 years old, my father, who was also a cattle dealer, sent me to Detroit. That's almost 200 miles from where we lived, with 100 cows and a contract with the U.S. Army. Now remember, this is the War of 1812. I made that distance by myself, through pretty much an untracked wilderness. Kept it all together, bartered with the men at the end, sold the cattle, got my money, and for a time I lived with a man there in Detroit. He'd a young boy about my age, who was black. He was a slave. And one day, for reasons I never quite understood, I have never understood, and I hope I never do understand, the boy did something wrong. And the man picked up a shovel and beat him about the head so severely that his eyes and his ears bled. I was outraged. I could not believe a human being could treat someone on such slim grounds so poorly. I swore at that moment that I would be the eternal enemy of slavery and put an end to this evil. And put an end to that evil is exactly what John Brown did when he starts a chain reaction of events that would spark the beginning of the Civil War. When we continue, right here on Our American Stories.
The stars of heaven are a-looking kindly down. The stars of heaven are a-looking kindly down. The stars of heaven are a-looking kindly down on the grave of old John Brown. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. And we return to Our American Stories, and that song is called The Body of John Brown. We all know the tune is the Battle Hymn of the Republic, but we learn that the original lyric was to honor the man who fought with passion against the forces of slavery in the United States, a man who was so passionate about the cause that it would eventually cost him his life. Let's return to the story of John Brown. After witnessing the savage beating of a slave in Detroit, John Brown made a vow that he would find a way to put an end to the practice of slavery in the United States. But there were other major obstacles in Brown's personal life that he would soon have to overcome. Obstacles that would alter the course of the rest of his life. While I was living in Richmond, Pennsylvania, some years later, we had six children at that point. My wife grew ill. It's now 1832, and we lost the child. And then we lost her. There was no containing my sorrow. I was inconsolable for days. I hardly knew where I was or what was going on around me. Our family, my wife and my children, were my world. And to lose them was the end of everything. Eventually, friends and neighbors gathered around me. And we hired people to come and help with the children. And I went on. But life was never the same. The woman who came to take care of our children had a sister, a younger sister, by the name of Mary. I became quite enamored of Mary some months later, and being a very shy man, could not bring myself to propose to her, for she was taking on a fearful burden at a very young age. So I wrote out my proposal on a slip of paper, and I slipped it in her apron, and then I waited. I saw her read it, and then she left the house, went down by the creek. And I slipped out of the house behind her, followed her down, and she turned and we spoke, and she said yes. My world, which had gone so terribly wrong, perhaps would never go right again, but it certainly got much better. Mary was a godsend to me. She was an angel from heaven. We moved here and there. We went through business ups and downs. We had some very difficult times. But the children began to arrive. And we had, by the end of things, 13 more children, 20 in all. John Brown moved his family to Franklin Mills, Ohio, now known as Kent. He borrowed money to buy land and built his own tannery. The site is now a historic attraction that includes the remains of the tannery where Brown lived from 1825 to 1835. It became a major stop on the Underground Railroad, a network of secret routes and safe houses used by slaves to escape into free states in Canada. Brown helped some 2,500 slaves during this period alone with the use of a hidden room in the house. By 1850, 
I'm living in Springfield, Massachusetts. It was in that year that the United States Congress, in its infinite wisdom, passed the Fugitive Slave Act. Oh, my. The states of the North, which had outlawed slavery, saw their laws run amok, or run roughshod over, and slave catchers from the South could come into the North and drag people off with impunity. On the barest of pretexts, they could accuse someone of being a slave, perhaps even though they had never been one. Mm, dark days indeed. There were many who lived in Springfield, who were of the African persuasion, who were in great fear of themselves uh, being drug off in the night. I formed the League of Gileadites. There is danger by oneself alone, but there is strength in numbers. And so I taught them to gather together and protect one another. And I gave them knives, and I showed them how to use them. And I said, if someone comes to take you off, don't go. It flourished. I had many friends in the black community who were dear to me as my own children and my own family. I would do anything for them, and they would have done anything for me. <clears throat> we had survived so many dark days before then. 1843, I lost three children in 11 days to fever. We were all terribly sick. Oh, to go out and be so deathly ill and to dig those graves for those young bodies. Oh, we had some hard times. But we had some good times. Two years before Brown's arrival in Springfield, in 1844, the city's African-American abolitionists had founded the Sanford Street Free Church, now known as St. John's Congregational, which went on to become one of the United States' most prominent platforms for abolitionist speeches. From 1846 until he left Springfield in 1850, Brown was a parishioner at the Free Church, where he attended lectures by Frederick Douglass. Whom I deeply respected, though I disagree with him on many issues. We battled back and forth over the issue of the use of violence in the defense of freedom. Frederick argued that should we go the route of violence, it would probably not go well for us and might not even achieve our goal. I argued back that we had to, that they were left with fewer and fewer options as time went on. Harriet Tubman I knew, the general. She called me the captain, I called her the general. She was an amazing woman. Such vision, such strength of character, such determination, such a woman. When it comes later on to my raid on Harper's Ferry, I argued with Frederick Douglass. But Harriet Tubman was my ally. She's going to come with us. Alas, she grew ill and was not able to come. We had many setbacks through those 1850s. The Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which turned Kansas into a battleground in 1854. The border ruffians came over from Missouri by the hundreds, by the thousands, in fraudulent elections the fall of that year. And they would stand there and they would say, this foot of ground, one square foot around me, I claim this as my territory, and that gives me the right to vote. And then they would go in and vote, all heavily armed, all with the stink of evil about them, the sin of it all. As the decade wore on, the Dred Scott decision comes down in 1857 saying that a black man's not even a, a person. He is no more than cattle. He is a thing to be owned. It was so disgusting. The insult of Charles Sumner, a United States senator, caned on the floor of the United States Senate by a congressman. And how does the South react? It sends Preston Brooks, the congressman, more canes. Hit him again. Was there no 
righteousness. Was there no justice? By 1854, I moved my family up to a little place in upstate New York called North Elba. We had been given some land there, and we had formed a colony of freed slaves and free blacks. It was a good place to be. One fall, out of the woods stumbled some men from Boston who were out on a hike. They sat at table with us at dinner that night and ate with us and had a wonderful time. And later he went away and said he was amazed that John Brown sat at table with black people and addressed them as Mr. and Mrs., not aunt and uncle, or by their first name. Here's a man who had been committed to the abolitionist cause, had written about it extensively, had a wonderful philosophical defense for why slavery should end and why abolitionism was a good thing, who was stunned that I would treat people as equals. He didn't understand me. I didn't understand him. By 1855, Brown's sons were living in the Kansas Territory, where the debate between anti- and pro-slavery was boiling over in the proposed state. They informed their father that pro-slavery forces had become militant. Determined to protect his sons, Brown left for Kansas, gathering an anti-slavery militia along the way. Optimistic they could bring Kansas into the Union as a slavery-free state. When we return, the story of John Brown continues right here on Our American Stories. And by the way, the voice of John Brown, the voice you're listening to, is that of Civil War reenactor Doug Dobbs, who is playing the role of John Brown for this story. He's also a history teacher at Broad Fording Christian Academy, a private school in Washington County, Maryland. And it can't be emphasized enough that many Christians went along with slavery, but many Christians opposed it, and opposed it from their strongest and deepest convictions, and from the strongest and deepest part of their faith. And again, we routinely like to tell the story of how faith and those who followed carefully their faith changed this country. When we continue, the life of John Brown continues here on Our American Stories. to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. His soul is marching on. John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. John Brown's knapsack is strapped upon his back. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. 
Return to the story of abolitionist John Brown, a man you might have learned about in high school, but a figure that is too often left out of Civil War history and American history itself. By the way, I talked about Doug Dobbs, who's playing the role of John Brown, and he's a high school history teacher at a private Christian school. My dad was a history high school teacher as well, and the repository of knowledge amongst Americans, not just history teachers, but ordinary folks, is deep, and we love Tapping into that well, let's return to the story of John Brown. Armed with weapons to defend his sons and anti-slavery forces in Kansas, John Brown and his militia were determined to make sure the newly proposed state went to the Union rather than pro-slavery. I gathered my resources. Mr. Beecher down in New York City was most accommodating to send me some of his Bibles. We packed them up, Sharps rifles, and labeled them Beecher's Bibles, and off we went to Kansas. I found my sons in deplorable conditions, sicker than dogs, unable to get out of bed. There was nothing to do but to force them to get up and work. And we worked, and we built, and we built some cabins, and we got through that winter, and it was an awful time. In the summer of the next year, by then I had, had formed a militia to defend ourselves, and I was given word that the town of Lawrence, north of us, was under threat from a Missouri militia. We raced north as fast as we could. We got there too late. Lawrence had been sacked. The town burned. The printing presses destroyed. Lawrence, an abolitionist stronghold, a place where free soil men could lift their heads and and do business and, and feel safe, had been destroyed. They deliberately set fire to the Union Hotel downtown. It was an awful time. I was beside myself. I couldn't believe that people could do this to one another. I went down to Pottawatomie Creek where a man named Mr. Doyle had made threats against my life to my face, not knowing who I was. I had gone through his camp under disguise, and he had told me that, yes, he was going to come and kill me and my sons, that my line could be wiped out. I said, it's too much. It's just too much. And so we went down there on the night of May 24th. And we dragged him from his bed, and we drug his sons out into the field. And we killed them. Now, I didn't do it, but I was there, and I gave my consent. It was an awful thing. But we had no choice. We had to strike back. We had to strike fear into the hearts of these ruffians. We had to let them know we would not be victims forever. They could not ride roughshod over us. We had to stand up for freedom. We had to stand up. In the two years prior to the Panawami Massacre, there had been eight killings in Kansas Territory from slavery politics. It was the match in the powder keg that precipitated the bloodiest period in bleeding Kansas history, three months of retaliatory raids and battles in which 29 people died. A force of Missourians, led by Captain Henry Pate, captured Brown's two sons and destroyed the family homestead. But on June 2nd of that year, John Brown, nine of his followers, and 20 local men successfully defended a free state settlement in Palmyra, Kansas, against an attack where Captain Pate and 20 of his men were taken prisoner. And we outfoxed them. There was about 30 of us at the start of the day, and about noontime, 
My ally decided it was time for lunch and left. Here I was, facing about 30 on the other side with about 18 men. Now, the other guys, they were kind of stupid. They'd pop up from behind a creek bed, and they'd shoot at us, and they'd pop back down again and reload and pop back up in the same place and shoot at us again. I said, boys, don't do that. When you pop down to reload, you move over, and you pop back up someplace else. And that's how we outfoxed them. They thought there was 100 men out there. They thought there was a lot more of us than there were of them. So at a certain point, there was a dust cloud off in the distance. He thought he was going to be surrounded, outnumbered. He better surrender now while he's getting was good. So he waves a white flag, sends out a couple of fellows, and I said, are you, are you the guy who's in charge here? He said, no. Nope. I said, you go get him. I'm not talking with anybody who's secondary. So he came out. I went out to meet him. We parleyed under white flag. And at a certain point, he said, well, I'm just not going to parley anymore. I'm going to go back to my side. I said, look behind you. And he looked behind him. And I'd given directions to two of my men to get between him and his lines with their rifles leveled at him. He couldn't go back. He said, that's not fair. We're under a white flag. I said, I don't mind. Give me your knife. And he did. He had a big Bowie knife. I took it from him. That's how I won the Battle of Blackjack. We took him back to his lines. And his men were in the, down in the, in, the, in the creek bed there saying, ready, aim. They were going to shoot all of us, him included. And he says, wait, 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 let's talk, let's talk, let's talk. We outfoxed him. I took that knife later on back east with me. And I went to a man up in Connecticut and I said, can you make me a thousand of these and make them as pikes? He said, sure. And that's why I made my pikes. You've probably heard about my pikes. They were made off of that knife. Later on when I was in jail down in Charlestown, came back. He wanted his knife back. <laughs> I said, don't have it anymore. <laughs> we outfoxed him. John Brown agreed to release Captain Pate and his men in exchange for his two sons. The severity of violence in the bleeding Kansas conflict made national headlines and led many Americans to believe the disputes along slavery lines were unlikely to reach compromise without bloodshed, setting the stage for the Civil War. Kansas was eventually admitted into the Union as a free state, but violence would continue for years to come. We danced back and forth with those fellows around Kansas for a while, and then things began to settle down. I decided to lay low for a while, came back east. And then about Christmas time, 1858, I went back to Kansas. I had decided what I needed to do. I'd been having this plan for a long time. We were, we were pulling people out through the Underground Railroad by ones and twos and threes and fours, and there was no way we were ever going to end slavery. There was no way to end this institution. We were just we were just draining little bits and pieces here and there. So I, I decided I'd experiment on a small scale. So I took my militia, and we went over to Vernon County, Missouri. And we attacked two places over there, two farms. We pulled out 11 people, 11 slaves. Took some horses, took a few other things. We figured they'd earned them. They deserved them. Liberated them, you might say. And we headed back into Kansas and went to ground. And we hid and while we were hiding there between Christmas and New Year's, my 11 who had escaped became 12. One of them was pregnant. She gave birth. Bless her heart. From there, we worked our way up north, back over through Illinois, back to Ohio. Eventually, we got up into Detroit, and I put them on the ferry across the river into Solomon, across into Canada to freedom. They were free. They were no man's property anymore. I said to myself, that's what we're going to do. Over the course of the next few months, he traveled again through Ohio, New York, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, 
to drum up more support for the cause before his next attack on slaveholders. An attack that would cost John Brown his life. When we return, the story continues right here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and the epic tale of abolitionist John Brown. Here once again is Jesse Edwards with a story. As John Brown began recruiting for a military-style attack on slaveholders in Virginia, he dreamed about fighting to build a new state for freed slaves. His prediction was that after the initial battle, slaves would rise up and carry out a mass rebellion across the South. So that summer, I came back here to Chambersburg, and I began to lay my plans in earnest. I rented some property down in southern Maryland, right across the river from Harper's Ferry. I rented a house down here, just down the street. And I watched the warehouse where my rifles were stored. They were marked mining equipment by this point. I was posing as Mr. Isaac Smith, a mining prospector. And so I could travel just about anywhere and look at just about anything with a prospect of maybe a mine being on their property and generating great wealth. Everybody was glad to see me. And so I looked and I poked and I wandered and I went all over the place and I made contact with people and we set up a plan. We were going to take a group of people across the river into Harper's Ferry and we were going to steal a bunch of rifles and we were going to get up in the mountains just south of there. We're going to build some redoubts, some forts up on top of the hill there and we're going to send out folks down to the plantations in the lowland and say, come, come away be free. We weren't going to do by tens, not even by twenties or hundreds. We were going to get thousands to come out and thousands beyond that. And we were going to run them up the ridge all the way to Canada. My aim was nothing less than to crash the entire economy of the South. They had as much money wrapped up in their slaves as the North did in their factories. If I could get their factories to run away, All their bills would come due at the bank, all those loans, all those mortgages, and they'd have nobody to work the fields and nobody to pick their cotton. And those bills would come due. I could bring down the whole system, crash the whole thing. It was a prize too big to ignore. In late August of 1859, John Brown met again with Frederick Douglass to ask for his help to attack Harper's Ferry Armory. The idea was to capture the armory, take the weapons, and arm thousands of freed slaves. Frederick and I had a debate here in Chambersburg. There's a big quarry down the south end of town. Hadn't been used in a long time. And we went out at hammer and tongs all day long. Him at saying, I shouldn't do this. It was a perfect trap, and if I walked into it, it would lock behind me, and I'd never get out alive. I told him, look, we can do this. We can come with us. I will protect you with my life. Come with us. And he soundly refused. But his young associate 
Mr. Newby, Dangerfield Newby, was a brave man. He had a wife and a child down south, and she had written him a letter saying she was afraid of being sold south and to come soon and try to get her out. And he said, I'll go. I'll go. What a man. What courage. And this from people whom others consider to be nothing more than animals. Well, the time came, October 16th, 1859. And I gathered our men, and we went down the road, and we cut the telegraph wires, and we went into Harper's Ferry. Brown had just 21 men, 16 white, three free blacks, one freed slave, and one fugitive slave. They ranged in age from 21 to 49. Twelve of them had fought side by side with Brown in Kansas. Initially, the raid went on without a hitch as they met no resistance entering the town. And we captured their arsenal. And then shots rang out. And much against my explicit orders, some of my men had fired in the dark. And they hit and killed a free black man. Broke my heart. But the die had been cast by that time. The shots brought out the local militia. We hunkered down in the firehouse. Eventually the Marines showed up. And a man who I'd met out in Blackjack in Kansas showed up. His name was Jeb Stewart, lieutenant in the U.S. Cavalry. He came to the door of that firehouse and said, Will you surrender? And I said, No, sir, I will not. And he stepped away from the door. That's the last I saw of him. He gave a signal. And the Marines came. They busted in the door. And a lieutenant came through the door wearing a dress sword. Didn't even have time to get his real saber. And he came at me with that sword. And of all things, that sword hit my belt buckle. And it bent double and snapped in half. I thought, Lord, save me. And he did. But then he began to beat me about the head with the sword and the hilt. And that was the end of that. I lost consciousness, came to, we were all captured, and it had all gone south. It was all a mess. And I, for a while there, I was in grave despair that Awful things would come from this to hurt people I loved. But eventually, God showed me that this was indeed the best path. And I got to speak my peace in court. And I got to call slavery for what it was in a Virginia courtroom. In Thomas Jefferson's backyard, I advocated for the freedom of those who had been enslaved. In the end, John Brown's men killed four people and wounded nine. Ten of Brown's men were killed including his two sons, Watson and Oliver. Five escaped, including his other son, Owen. Seven were captured along with Brown. The trial began October 7th. Brown was charged with murdering four whites and a black, conspiring with slaves to rebel, and treason against Virginia. His defense argued that he couldn't be guilty of treason against a state he didn't live in, that he didn't directly kill anyone himself, and that the raid's failure indicated that Brown had not conspired with slaves. But on November 2nd, after a two-week trial and just 45 minutes of deliberation, the jury found John Brown guilty on all three counts. He was sentenced to be hanged in public on December 2nd. Finally, Mary came down to visit me. Of course, she was quite upset. I tried to comfort her. This is all in God's timing. I came to see this is all in God's hand, that my death by hanging was going to be the most wonderful thing that could have happened. 
I became convinced now there was no turning back and there would be a war and the slaves would be free eventually. It would come at great cost. God laid it all out before me. I saw it all. And if it takes my death to do it, so be it. I go gladly to it. The day came and I rode out to the gallows, sitting on my coffin in the back of a wagon, quite cheerful as it was. And I'd slipped a note to my jailer telling him I thought this was not going to end well for them. Slaves would be free. It would be costly, but they'll be free. And I walked the 13 steps and I looked around and they had 2,000 soldiers guarding me. <laughs> Here I was about to hang and they were afraid of me. It was, it was quite delightful, actually. Quite amusing. And they put the rope around my neck. And they waited. And I said, oh, please be quick about it. And finally they did. And my neck snapped. And I went to meet my Lord. Many men wonder about whether their lives will ever count for something. Many men wonder whether they've done anything important with everything they've ever done. I lost three of my sons in this struggle to violence. Two in Harper's Ferry, one out in Osawatomie, Kansas. They shot them down cold from the ambush. I left a lot of other children laying in the grave before I went. I lost half of my 20 before I saw my end. But I did not go to my grave thinking I had not made a difference. I knew I had made a difference. The world was going to change. And I had helped it. John Brown's body was placed in a wooden coffin, with the noose still attached. In the northern states, large memorials took place. Church bells rang. Minute guns were fired. And the raid on Harper's Ferry set the nation on course for civil war. Slave owners in the South heard rumors that hundreds of abolitionists were involved. So they began to organize well-established militias, which would later become the Confederate Army. The year following the death of John Brown, Abraham Lincoln was elected president, and the rest is history. After the Civil War, Frederick Douglass wrote of John Brown, quote, His zeal in the cause of my race was far greater than mine. It was the burning sun to my taper light. Mine was bounded by time. His stretched away to the boundless shores of eternity. I could live for the slave but he could die for him. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always to Jesse, and a special thanks again to Doug Dobbs playing the role of John Brown. And he's also a history teacher at Broadfording Christian Academy, a private school in Washington County, Maryland. Amazing that 2,000 soldiers would have to guard this man. They knew what they were doing. They had a lot to worry about. America had tried everything, every kind of compromise imaginable. What happened in bloody Kansas, what happened in Harper's Ferry, well, it was destined to happen that the North and South would go to war over slavery. We live in the South and broadcast from Oxford, Mississippi, and there are still a few here 
I call them the hopeless lost causers who actually think the war wasn't fought over slavery. One day they'll give that one up too. It is what caused the Civil War. It is still America's original sin, a sin we're still paying for. John Brown's story, here on Our American Stories.